I, we had all kinds of things set up, and they were all canceled. And I just put out a, in the spring a family cookbook, and I was going to go on the New York Times uh, uh, cooking blog and uh, you know 92nd Street Y and all that. Every, everything's canceled. It's just in this poor book hit it in the wrong time too i wasn't aware of the cookbook can you tell me a little bit about the story behind the cookbook yeah i've over the years i was involved in food safety legislation and regulation and back in the 60s 70s people would ask me what do you eat and i'd mumble something because i grew up with a uh, mediterranean diet and from lebanon my parents and say something like hummus and they say what's that so I finally decided to put it all in a cookbook. So it's really the recipes my mother developed and raised us. And it's got some good advice on how young parents can raise their kids, make them eat without whining, and uh, use the dinner table as an educational forum for agriculture, food, sustainability, where the food comes from, what nutrition is all about. So it was a great little book. And uh, beautifully done by Akasic Books in New York City. And um, all I got was a N- NPR thing on Sunday, and everything else was canceled. Yeah, I mean, say what you will about uh, our progress as a culture, but you know, I, I, I will say that I think we've made a major step in the right direction, and that I think as of 2020, most people will know what you're talking about when you refer to hummus. Yeah, oh yeah, it has been great progress and. Ethnic restaurants, I'll tell you, <laughs> all over the country. And, of course, it's greater nutrition, and uh, and the ingredients are inexpensive. You can get them all, almost everywhere except pine nuts and a couple other things. But people spend more time in the kitchen now, so it's a good... If you ever want to do a podcast on the book, I'd be happy to do it. I did actually want to start with this, a little bit of a personal anecdote on my end. As I said earlier, I'm, I'm based in Queens, and when the pandemic was really hitting hard here, I was uh, diagnosed with Bell's palsy back in Whoa. late March, early April. Obviously, I'm coming out of it now in that I'm able to speak to you, but I know that you dealt with that in, in the mid-80s, and, and I'm you know, really curious of what the experience was like for you dealing with that in, in such a public way. Well, I had to go to 48 states to fight the insurance companies who were trying to destroy tort law, the law of wrongful injury. And um, I was in the middle of that, and I caught it coming back from Hawaii. I think uh, one way they think you can catch it is if you're under an open vent hitting your ear in an airplane, you fall asleep. Somehow it conveys the virus. So I was up in Massachusetts debating somebody, and all of a sudden the whole side of the mouth face sort of collapsed. You know, people think it's a stroke when that happens. Well, obviously, in in this case, it was um, Bell's palsy. But I still had to keep going on the roads. I was down in Florida, and... Uh, Tallahassee is a big press conference, and one of the anchors said, uh, please tell us what's wrong with your face, otherwise people will think you're drunk. So I, I decided to make a bunch of jokes, like, you know, Bell's palsy, oh, you, you, at least you don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. 
my circumstances were different in that I, I woke up one morning and I had, I'd lost it. I, I hadn't heard of it coming on so suddenly during a, a debate like that. I assume that you had to at least end that debate to try to figure out what was happening to you medically. Well, it was at the end of the debate that it started. So, yeah, right. I went back to the hotel and I looked in the mirror and said, what? 40,000 people get it every year in the U.S. They don't do any research because they don't think it's that serious compared to Lou Gehrig's disease. So they don't, NIH doesn't do any research on it. They rely on it to self-recover. Do you have it for about four months? I was able to talk about two or three months in. I started the recovery process. It's it's been It's been close to six right now. I'm able to speak. It's still... It's not fully there. And my my big breakthrough last night is I was able to whistle, which mm-hmm. you know is obviously yeah. kind of a, a fairly sophisticated thing to do with the mouth. I'm headed in the right direction, but it's it's I, it's still not a hundred percent. Yeah, well, you may not get it a hundred percent because uh, one thing that lasts often is if you're eating food, delicious food, you're going to tear a lot. That's what. That's what stays with you. The the onset was in a, a very public setting, but you had, as you said before, you had to go out and and do this tour. Was that a was that a difficult decision? I mean, you don't strike me as being a particularly vain person, but there is a certain, I, I guess, vanity in, in being out there and being a public figure. Was it was it difficult to go through this kind of thing in a public way? Oh yeah, but if you announced it at the beginning, then you, you diminish some of the questions that occur in people's minds. But there is no choice. You had to, this is a major attack on, on a pillar of justice, you know, trying to keep wrongfully injured people out of court and they can't get an adequate award. So it was a major campaign by the property casualty insurance companies. There must be a sense doing what you do, though, that there's always, there's always another one of those, you know, major fights to be fought. And I assume that to some degree, in order for you to just, you know, be able to, to live your life and focus on something that you do still kind of have to pick your battles. Yeah, there's always, you know, injustice uh, works 24 hours a day. So if you're going to counteract that, you got to put the time in. Have you found, though, as you've continued on and, and as you've gotten a little older, that you do have to be a little bit more choosy with the battles that you do fight? Well, you always do because you never have enough resources or staff. So you always do that. You try to work on leverage more. And uh, which is what this book, on the rap book's about. What, what does leverage mean in this context? Well, you try to encourage people, instead of trying to do it all yourself, you try to encourage people to start these groups in all the congressional districts and network each other and hurl, hurl the people against the Congress. and Or you just spend all the time doing it yourself in Washington and not getting anywhere near as much done. So you got to multiply, multiplying yourself to kind of leverage. How far into your doing this sort of activism did you realize that you weren't going to be able to do it all yourself and that you did have to really employ the help of others? Oh, right from the beginning. When I started writing on auto safety, defective autos, they would send me their examples of lemon cars that they've had and and the dealer isn't fixing it or the manufacturer isn't recalling it. And so you could do that forever. But as I went to Congress and got bill passed, which included mandatory recall. So you worked wholesale instead of retail. So, you know, one recall was 7 million cars, Chevys, 
imagine trying to deal with that once one at a time so that's that's what i mean by multiplying yourself and uh, using leverage in the preparation for this conversation i i watched a number of speeches that you gave including some that you gave at, at harvard and obviously you were not afraid to be very very critical of the system you did go through that you did you did study at harvard and and i'm curious at what point in the process did you realize that did you realize the, the sort of the problem with the system that you were working within? Well, I, you know, used to read the muckraking books when I was 13, 14 years old from the early 20th century, like by Ida Tarbell on Standard Oil and and um, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair on the meatpacking plant horrors in Chicago. So I, I was very early into knowing that this was not an idiosyncratic economic abuse system that there, there were systems designed to shear power away from the people and concentrate it in the hands of the few so i didn't have to learn that on the job having gone to harvard law school did you think though that you would be able to affect some of that change working more directly within the system well working on the system i, I never went into a law firm in you know, new york or anything like that or into the government, except for a few months. I was consulting with the Labor Department on uh, the uh, motor vehicle safety experience of federal employees, millions of federal employees. So it was, it was always working on it. That's where you, you had a crowbar effect when you worked on it. You get the media, you get the public mobilized, you do litigation, you do outside lobbying, and... Um, and, uh, you know, we had a modestly responsive Congress, unlike today. Today, Congress is about the worst it's ever been. And uh, that's why I wrote this book, because we wrote a book in the 70s called Who Runs Congress? It was the best-selling book in, in history on Congress. But now the publishers don't even want to publish a book like that. So I had to do it in a semi-humorous fable matter. And... Uh, start out with the, the day the rats, you know, went up the, the pipes and everything and flooded the offices and everything was chaotic and all kinds of uh, derision in the media, laughing at the senator's representative staff, calling in the extermination forces and behaving erratically and and uh, in an exaggerated way. And that, over the mass media, got people who never paid attention to Congress to pay attention. And they decided, well, you know, some of this is good now. We've got Congress on the run thanks to the rats. And now we're going to mobilize and take over Congress. And then it becomes very realistic in terms of how they went around doing it. So it becomes like a guidebook, only not, you know, rules or anything, but just a whole series of experiences that people have that start to work on the 535 members of Congress, including mass encircling Congress with a million people, you know, shouting their demands and being heard inside the halls of Congress, and then getting some members to come out and join them. It'd be, it'd be a nice movie, actually. As we said earlier, there aren't the, the book tours and appearances that there would have been otherwise, but do you find that the re reaction has been different because it's a fable? Uh, well, uh, not not really. It turns out 
this is not the best time for fables in terms of American history. <laughs> um, however, because the beginning is so jolting that some people in Congress thought it was disgusting, and but it was very realistic in terms of what rats could do, and uh, and the idea was to jolt the reader into saying, "Holy smoke! I mean, this could happen in any building," and and then. It starts becoming farcical, and then it gets into the thrust of the book, which is to get people to laugh themselves seriously and say, you know, it doesn't take that much to overcome the corporate interests in Congress. It takes less than 1% of the people organized in every congressional district, just one less than 1%, uh, with a couple full-time offices that they support in each district, and they develop summons, they have a practice where they do their town meetings and they summon the senators and representatives to their own town meetings. And But the whole thing is back and forth, Washington, back home, all kinds of exciting dynamics, uh, huge lobbying collisions, Wall Street lobbyists and the, the local tr uh, trade groups in Washington and how the they collide with each other. And It's got a lot of good dialogue. I put a lot of my knowledge of Congress in it. And it's very easy to to read, and it's almost to do it yourself. It even has the summons uh, of, that the people put on a petition to get the senators and representatives in, back home in an auditorium, where they, the people, present the agenda and ask what the response is uh, by the senators. And they've developed a system where they advance the agenda so. The senator can't say, well, I'll go, I'll go back and look at it. No, you, you've had two months to look at it. What's your decision? We represent the majority of the people in this district, and we've got public opinion on our side. And, of course, you have the press on the side watching all this. And it shows that you can break through power. It's a lot easier than people think. And it's got great uh, uh, artwork by uh, Mr. Fish from Philadelphia. It's really pretty spectacular artwork. Uh, woven throughout the 140-odd pages. It's a nice hardback, and uh, I think uh, Fantagraphics did a terrific uh, job producing it. When you say you can break through and, and that it's easier than you think, you know, obviously, again, a lot has changed in Congress, mostly for the negative, as far as I could tell. What does that mean? I mean, how, how, does, uh, how does one break through now? Yeah, well, see, that question should have been answered in... Uh, middle school and high school, but we don't teach practical civics and how to practice democracy and how to develop civic skills and strategies. So, so let's take, for example, uh, full Medicare for all. First question you want to ask is, why isn't Congress doing this? You know, every Western country does it, comes in at half price. It's more efficient. There are no networks, free choice of doctor and hospital, save a lot of lives that are lost because people can't afford health insurance to get diagnosed and treated in time, on and on. Well, uh, it's because the health insurance lobbyists, drug company lobbyists are all over Capitol Hill and they put money in the campaign of these senators and representatives. Really? Okay, so what's going on back home? What do you mean what's going on back home? I mean, people really are hurting and they get denied benefits they pay for or they can't afford because they're not insured. That's not my question. I'm saying how much activities are back home on each senator and representative? 
There are only 535 of them. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, what do you think these members of Congress want more than money from special interests? Well, the answer is votes. How many votes do the companies have? Well, not many. Who has the votes? Oh, we the people have the vote. Well, isn't that where you start? Let's see. Is there one full-time person in the congressional district working on full Medicare for all? No, not really. Well, what do you expect? You've got 400 full-time people representing the drug companies on Capitol Hill as we speak. How can you do something with nobody? Well, what, what should we do? Well, you start a letterhead and you say, so-and-so congressional district, Illinois, and you have a good advisory committee and you start the petition. And what's the petition for? Well, it depends what you want from Congress. Let's say you want full Medicare for all. Okay, that's on the petition. So first thing you do is you get all kinds of people writing legibly their name, contact information, and their occupation. So it isn't just a scribble on a clipboard. So the senator represents these are real people. You know, look, you've got an engineer, you've got a lawyer, teacher, business person. This is quite varied here. This is not some quickie thing. And for heaven's sake, they're linked. They know each other. And then once you get 500, we'll get you a senator. 500 of those names will get you a senator coming to your community for a town meeting. Once you got the senator there, there's no flack. There's no can't get through to my senator, can't get through to chief of staff. All they do is give me an intern. No, you're right there, and you're ready, and you lay it out. You say, here's, who, here's who's buying and renting you, senator, company this, trade association that. This is the kind of money you've been getting. You don't represent us. You want to come back next election? You better listen to us. You ready? And then you lay it out. And you tell the senator, basically, you know a lot more about this than he does or she does. Then you say, we're not going away. It's been a good session. We'll give you a few days to let us know your your response. And um, if it's negative, uh, we'll just have more town meetings throughout the state. You want to test us? Just ask us. All this is in front of the media. All this is linked by website and a couple full-time offices with two full-time people so that the people who belong to the Congress Watchdog Group are volunteers. They're just volunteer citizens, and they have other work. So they need 40 hours a week some full-time staff in each district. And you'll get it in less than 18 months. Nothing can stop it. And, you know, they the money isn't, isn't that much to raise. It's just, it's the old story throughout history. Why do the few control the many? Because the few are organized and the many are not. That's what it comes down to. You can do it for issue after issue. Minimum wage, that should never have been allowed to be frozen at seven and a quarter. I mean, that comes in at 75%, want a higher minimum wage. Blue state, red state, conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. They want to put food on the table for their kids. So, you know, I tell some of these billionaires, you know, for a billion dollars, we can raise the minimum wage nationwide to 15 bucks. Want to try it? We even give you uh, what's left over. You want to, you want to reform the corporate tax system? Uh, a billion and a half dollars will overpower everybody. All the tax crooks, the accountants, the corporate tax lawyers, 
the lobbying, because you're, you're still dealing with 535 people whose names we know who want to get reelected. If you start out with about a, a third on your side to begin with, which isn't a bad start. Something has happened to people to persuade them they're powerless, and they get cynical, and they withdraw, and then they start exaggerating the big boys. Uh, you can't do something with Exxon. You can't do something with Citigroup. You can't do something with Pfizer. Really? I mean, just look at American history. Every time people have modestly woken up, they've overpowered these forces. The whole populist progressive movement never had more than 1% of the people active. All the justices that we inherited from our forebears, apart from wars, not one of the movements ever had more than 1% of the people. But they, they, they knew what they were talking about. They were relentless. And they represented public opinion. That was Abraham Lincoln's trilogy. You know what you're talking about? You're 1% or less, and you represent the public sentiment. He used the word public sentiment. And that's what you need. And the key is Congress. It's Congress. It's Congress. It's not just having half a million people march in San Francisco or L.A. or New York on a weekend and uh, blasting forth their protests and demands, and then they go back home. You focus on Congress. You encircle Congress. That's why the, this book, the, the Day the Rats Vetoed Congress, is so important, because it exposes the, uh, the absence of the most obvious strategy of all. Whenever you want something for a country that's good for it, you have to ask, who are the formal decision makers? Is it state legislature? Is it Congress? Is it the president? Is it all of them? And that's where you laser beam their power. You don't blow the energy of the people just in marches and all the energy goes up in the ether. And then, you know, they leave and there's a lot of rubbish and it has to be cleaned up. All these rallies in Washington are weekends when members of Congress aren't there. They're not looking out the window to see 200,000 people. So pretty soon they can't get 200,000. And then it's 100,000. And then it's 50. And, it's, and it's, then it's the Internet. And it's the screen. Then it's the email. That's not the way you do it. You do it person to person, and that's what this book demonstrates. The day the rats. So it's a, a fable of citizen action that will make you laugh yourself seriously. Because when you start asking, what do you want this country to, to change for? And you make a list of 15 things you want. You want to crack down on corporate crime and fairer tax system, climate disruption, diminish that, living wage, uh, fair housing, good public transit, um, and, of course, uh, health care, and so on. Ask yourself, what institutions do have to go through? No matter how many people are for it, uh, converting to solar energy big time. And the answer is Congress. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House, you get two-thirds of Congress. Congress, the most important and powerful branch of the Constitution, has, has generic power that the executive and judiciary do not have. Confirms the judges, funds the government, taxes the people, investigates, and all these things. And people don't grow up to, to understand that they got a great uh, crowbar in the form of Congress and these members have to come back home and face the people, especially if they get a demand. 
Do you think that a, a march can be a, a powerful and useful tool? Yeah, that's only the beginning, though. The march is what builds the public opinion and uh, congeals it. And from the marches, you get your more serious volunteers as a recruitment. And you get media, because media likes large marches, not as much as they used to, but they still do. Yeah, but that's just the beginning. You know, and then in the march, you invite the, the senators and representatives to speak on the stage. If they do, they're they're affected. If they don't, they're disadvantaged. And in a march, you can, as they say in the old days, pass the bucket and raise a lot of money and open an office after the weekend is over. So there's some full-time people in Washington extending everything that you organized the march for. Is there a role for the Internet in all of this? Yeah, but only a trans transition role. Internet is good to get information and to learn about the issues, and it's good to tell people there are marches and rallies and all. But then it becomes a snare and a delusion because the person-to-person the, the -person is far, far more effective. You can send a million emails to a senator, and it's not as effective as a thousand people in an auditorium with the senator on the stage answering questions because it it's it's diluting itself by the year you know the email text message clutter you go to change.com you know the petition uh, change.org yeah hundreds of thousands of petitions <laughs> it's just you know you start out a petition nothing happens so it gets diluted, it's full of clutter, distraction, and um, it's a substitute for action. There's a lazy person substitute. It's like, well, I, I sent the email, I was okay, you know. Um, and, and you can do it out of your, your home uh, or in your car. Um, and just, just uh, remember, it's never been harder to get through to your congressional office since the Internet started. It's harder than ever. And um, to get the attention of your senator representative, they're, they're all overloaded. They got this thing in their hand 16 hours a day. They're looking at it. They're not looking at real human beings. They don't have time to meet with you in their office. And it's an enemy of democracy if it's misused, and it is misused, and used used as if it was an end in itself instead of just a preliminary in gathering, and then it exhausts itself. It can only be perpetrated by person to person. You touched on cynicism before, and and obviously, right now in 2020, I, I think a lot of people are cynical, and it's difficult not to be cynical. Uh, I certainly feel cynical about uh, politics uh, a lot of the time. You must have felt that at, at some point in your career. There must have been moments where you felt like you were banging your head against the wall or where things felt kind of helpless. Yeah, but that's not cynicism. That's being discouraged temporarily to bounce back. There's a difference between cynicism and skepticism. Cynicism is withdrawal and, um, you know, just forgetting about it. It's trying to get through uh, life every day. And skepticism is a technique of analysis that allows for a rebound. And we've had so many victories uh, until 
the Democrats defaulted and started raising money like the Republicans and became like the Republicans. But, you know, we saved a lot of lives, transformed the auto industry, got through the great uh, water pollution, air pollution laws, set up a national cooperative bank, uh, got the freedom information law through. That's a huge, huge uh, advance for civic participation. And um, a lot of other bills, the Flammable Fabrics Act, Pipeline Safety Act, and um, Product Safety Commission Act. Um, but all these things we did for the people, people start taking for granted, and they didn't spend any time on their Congress. So I, I say to people, when you meet each other and you say, hi, how are you? Why don't you then ask the question, how's your civic life? That, that, that'll start a, a conversation. <laughs> how's your civic life? <laughs> <laughs> the the thing about this book is it starts out with all the cynicism and everything. It shows how you build a popular force and how out of nowhere comes natural leaders like Doug Colbrook is a fictional character. He's an early retired stonemason. He saw all this stuff with the rats in Congress on TV. And he said, you know... Uh, there's an opportunity here. And so he, he, he had a big meeting from around the country because he started getting a following on the Internet, see, as a preliminary. And they met at a airport, at O'Hare Airport, to start the strategy. And then there were a lot of other streams of activity and uh, a lot of uh, internal congressional uh, mumbling and fumbling and and in the process, the reader learns about the dynamics of Congress. They learn what the levers are, what the opportunities are, what the incentives are, uh, how the corporate interests have locked these people down. And then it goes into uh, the concerns of big business when they see this movement coming to Washington, organized around the congressional offices back home, getting more and more media, having agendas together, getting allies with about 110 progressive members, younger members of Congress, setting up the congressional hearings, getting everything done together, because speed is often the best and only way to get dramatic change. You can't just say, like people under President Truman's day, well, we didn't get full health care, but we'll get it. And they got Medicare and Medicaid under Lyndon Johnson. We didn't get full health care, but we'll get it. And we're still not getting it. Because the longer you wait, the more the public attention veers away and the more the corporate interests learn to game the system and fight back and and gain more time for their greed and profiteering. I think this is what interested uh, Mr. Fish with it, is uh, the, the blending of fiction, humor, and reality. And the reality starts taking over in terms of the exciting strategies and how three billionaires took up uh, a, a, a condo in Washington on Pennsylvania Avenue watching all the activity, and they decided to fund it uh, so that the uh, Civic groups didn't have to run out of money because he had incredible transportation costs and, uh, and other expenses as they kept surrounding Congress. They knew if they got Congress, it was over. 
I got the president. The president was a conservative president in this book, and it shows how he was turned around, first against his will. Then he realized, you know, the, he realized that uh, this was for all the people, not just conservatives and liberals. And there's a lot of activity in the White House in, in this book uh, as well. And then in the end, it's got a surprise ending, which I won't uh, disclose. And I think it would make a great movie. Does writing humor come naturally to you? Yeah. Once I thought through it, I can knock off a book in a matter of weeks. But there's not that much time because you have to divide the time in terms of action. You've got to do a lot of action. But now, you see, you spend more and more of your time trying to get through to people. This is a big story in America. We have the constitutional right to petition our government. But we can't get through to them. And it's amazing. And the same thing. Try to get through to your local utility. Try to get through to your bank. We live in an information age. Never had so many information technologies. It's harder than ever to get through to people. I could get through to people in 1940 and 50, better than today. Do you feel that humor has consistently been an important tool for you in terms of trying to reach out to people? Well, it's a way to get people's attention on, like, if you're on the Phil Donahue show or Meet the Press, <clears throat> a little humor followed by serious talk, you get their attention. A lot of humor can be wasted. That is, people get their kicks out of laughing, watching John Stewart make fun of President this, Senator that. And then it's like they get their kicks and that's it. It doesn't turn them into activists. John Stewart knew that better than anyone else. So it depends on the humor, the context, how it's linked, how it isn't linked. And uh, most part, it's just a, a relief valve. And it makes people feel good for the moment, but it doesn't change their routine. You have to break your routine if you're going to be a stalwart for a just and democratic society. You can't keep doing what you're doing uh, and uh, dividing up your day with no time for citizen action. You got, And time is the currency of democracy. One of the arguments I hear a lot uh, when people are complaining about the system, complaining online, is that if you want to affect change, that you should run for office. Is, is that something that you encourage? Do you think that, that, you know, in terms of actually affecting positive change, that a, a good route is for more people to run? Definitely. That's right in the book. There are challengers going after these veteran lawmakers who forgot about the people all the time. And you got to do the whole circle. And if you want Congress to be responsive to of, by, and for the people, you can't just have masses of people around the Congress and blowing off steam. It's all got to be linearly uh, attached to laser beam concentration on replacing Congress or changing the incumbent's mind. So there, there are some fun campaigns here as well. We also have a, a Damon Runyon detective character here who uh, uh, first, first spots the shrieks of uh, uh, fear when the rats go up the toilets in uh, members of Congress offices because he's sitting there, you know, interviewing a staffer on some issue. And so he's sort of the, the thread throughout the book as he goes out around the country and he gets one scoop after another in terms of the, the narrative uh, movement of the, the book, The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress. Now that we've had a, a few years of people like AOC or or or, uh, you know, Rashida Tlaib, Ilan Omar. What are your impressions of them? Do you feel that they are the kinds of politicians that people have been hoping for? Yeah, I mean, they're very good. They have good policies, but 
they're being managed by Nancy Pelosi and the old guard. Some some would say they're being blocked. And the big mistake they made when they came to Washington is they didn't sit down with the national citizen groups who have millions of members around the country, Common Cause, Public Citizen, People for the American Way, Center for Study, Science in the Public Interest, Pension Rights Center, or some of the more progressive labor unions and and other groups big mistake big mistake uh, they they were they came in with a whole amount of publicity uh, and you'll notice that apart from AOC things are calming down in terms of the interest of the media because they've stalled and it's taken months for me just to get through to them i mean you know we've been around we didn't come to washington in a ufo we had a lot to show them to teach them to warn them to avoid the pitfalls, how to deal with the older members of their party who have the committee controls. We know the witnesses, the experts. And to this day, I have not been able to get through to AOC. I went to her office three times. She wasn't there. She has all these stickums of phone calls praising her and emails praising her on the outside wall of the corridor. Hundreds of stickums. It's almost like a tourist attraction. And the only one who really uh, came back, it was Rashida Tlaib. The others... I was in Ilhan Omar's office. She came out briefly, said hello. Can never get her chief of staff back. That's the untold story. You can't connect. You can't reach people. You can't get anything done, period. Even if they agree with you 100%. And nobody writes the story up because the press, they know, they get through because of their press, obviously. And so they don't see it the way the citizen groups see it, who are shut out and excluded all the time. The citizen groups don't want to raise the issue because that demonstrates their powerlessness. See, that's not good for membership drives. Uh, and uh, so I'm writing a long letter to the, all the citizen groups on how, compared to the 60s and 70s, the media has excluded civic groups and leaders. They don't get their opinions on uh, electoral matters. They don't put them on Meet the Press anymore. PBS shuts them out. They they begin interviewing each other instead of citizen uh, specialists who know far more about the subject than a particular reporter interviewed by uh, Judy Goodwith. It's, it's a big problem. And and it's exacerbated by, oh, I don't check my voicemail. Just email me or text. And then it hits the clutter and it hits the filters and you can't get them on the phone. <laughs> I mean, and, and forget about writing a letter. You're talking about reporters, editors, members of Congress, their staff. I mean, right now, I have all kinds of advice, very critical advice to give to certain candidates to take over the Senate. Can't even get through to them. I put it in writing. You don't know whether they ever got it because they don't acknowledge receipt. Do you get the impression that something like, you know, having run as a third party candidate, having run in the 2000 election is something that gives Democratic politicians an excuse not to engage with you? Well, that was true. They were, they were always looking for scapegoats. The Democratic Party never looks itself in the mirror and asks, how do we keep losing these elections to the worst Republican Party in history? A party that's openly anti-union, anti-worker, anti-consumer, anti-environment, pro-Wall Street, pro-war, pro-tax loopholes for the rich, uh, voter suppression. And the answer is the Democrats always looking for scapegoats, you know, and the Green Party's a scapegoat. This little tiny part. <laughs> so, um, and um, and they still do it because they don't challenge the electoral college. They don't support this great movement, the 
You know about the national popular vote movement? Yes. That's to get states, you know, like your New York state, California, Illinois. Yeah, that they would to give overturn the, the electoral. Yeah. Well, they're up to 196 now yeah. out of 270. <clears throat> the Democrats have lost two presidential elections in 16 years from 2000 2016 to the Electoral College after winning the popular vote. And they don't even lend any support to this seven person staff led by Steve Silberstein out of San Francisco that's pulled this off and getting closer and closer. So they, they don't introspect, they don't do postmortems after they lose these elections. Um, they just look for scapegoats and keep their sinecure and dialing for the same commercial campaign dollars as the, as do the Republicans. But w what's good about this book is it, it, it tangles with all these issues in very good dialogue. It's very, I must say, I worked on the dialogue. People want to get this book. It's a hardback. Obviously, they can get it online. They can get it in bookstores, maybe. And uh, and but in the COVID nineteen period, you can go right to ratsreformcongress.org. Ratsreformcongress.org, and order as many copies as you want. Rats reformed Congress. You're not going to limit the number of copies that people can order. No, I say that because we've had this interesting phenomena where they order five copies at a time. And you wonder whether they have a little civic club going or some living room gathering, which would be very encouraging. It's a it's a very engaging book. As I say, it has a jolting, some people call disgusting, 15, 20 pages at the beginning. As we're recording this, we're about a month out from the, uh, the presidential election. And I think when this goes up, we'll be closer to, to two weeks. Do you know who you're going to vote for in the presidential election? Yeah, but I never uh, publicize my vote. It's a private matter. It, it diverts. It diverts attention. I assume it's safe to say that you're not a, a huge fan of either Trump or Biden. <laughs> That's true. But I've written far more articles denouncing the Trumpster than uh, than Biden. Biden doesn't like me. He goes back a long way. I didn't like the way he handled the Anita Hill hearings. And uh, he was too close to these big corporations chartered in Delaware. But now, you know, the, you're dealing with a person in the White House who's who's off the charts, you know, in all kinds of ways and lying and bungling and boasting falsely and slandering people and undermining science and self-enriching himself and fantasizing and doesn't read, doesn't think, doesn't get briefed. Uh, so he has a penchant for concentrating power. And in a book we've just published with Mark Green called uh, Wrecking America, uh, the the last few pages trace the steps he's taken to consolidate dictatorial control. And he's not very smart in a lot of things, but when it comes to seizing and controlling power, he's way up there. Obviously, it's impossible to predict the future, but do you get the sense or are you hopeful that we will see a, a truly viable third party presidential candidate in your lifetime? Well, I'd like to say yes with grassroots support, but I think it's more likely to come from a, a popular billionaire who immediately gets high polls, immediately gets media credibility because the person has the money. Uh, however, that will not come unless uh, the national popular vote works and gets rid of, neutralizes the Electoral College. And there'll have to be a real disillusionment with both parties with an, a great emergency uh, afflicting the land. Could be climate disruption. Uh, you remember Perot, you know, he got a lot of votes. He got 19 million votes in 1992. 
But there was a time in 1992, I think in the summer, before he abruptly lost his temper and dropped out only to return a month and a half later in the fall, where he, he actually led the polls of uh, ahead of uh, the Democratic and Republican nominees. So there are a lot of independents, uh, voters, and a lot of people who can go for a third party, but it's got to have a lot of... Uh, local candidates to provide a base got to have a lot of uh, field people and which means a lot of money but there are you know there are multi-billionaires with a lot of money these days yeah i mean you said likely one of the causes is some kind of great upending it sure feels like we are pretty close to the precipice at this point oh it'll get worse i mean climate disruption imagine 10 years of climate disruption three times worse than this year all over the country um you see, it becomes unavoidable for system change. And, of course, mass organization and mass national discipline and reallocation of public budgets away from the uh, bloated military budget that is creating empire that is boomeranging against us and creating more enemies by the year. So there'll be sort of come home tax dollars and come home Washington with hurricanes, droughts, floods, wildfires. We sort of it's almost out of a science fiction. Have you thought about retiring? You know, do you think that there might be a point in your life where you will? Well, as long as you do civic work, the retirement is banished from the lexicon. Why would anybody sit around playing shuffleboard in some village in Arizona or Florida? The key is to adopt the old saying, the only true aging is the erosion of one's ideals. And that's why I want people to recover Congress, because that's the big lever for massive systemic change reflecting heavy public opinion for long overdue justice, opportunity, and stability in our country. 